Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 19 of the History Books and Wine podcast. I am your host this week, Madeline Martin. I'm a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. And speaking of some tough heroines, we're discussing badass women in history this month. And I will be discussing Grace O'Malley, whose real name I actually can't pronounce, so I probably really won't try to go into a lot of detail on a lot of the Gaelic words because I feel like I am just completely butchering them. Grace O'Malley was a rebel against the English, a pirate, a mom, and of course, a total badass. But first, I'm going to talk about what I'm drinking tonight. I'm drinking Apothic Crush, which is my favorite wine ever, really. I think I like all of the wines in the Apothic line. They're all just really, really good. But Crush has this wonderful, smooth, velvety finish, and even the bottle is just super pretty. So I went to their website to get information on the wine and discovered that I think Apothic may have the coolest website that I think I've ever been to. It's total image candy. It's got all these pretty like scrolling things and whoever writes the blurbs really just does an amazing job. So if you love wine, this website is really a must visit. I will include the link in the show notes, of course. I also discovered on the website that they have little mini bottles of the Apothic Red, which is another one of my favorites. And I don't know where to get it, but I need to get those because those little things are great for going on vacation. (laughs) From the website about Apothic Crush, listen to how they describe it. The first taste entices stimulating the senses. The next taste ignites, arousing passion. Oh my gosh, who doesn't want this wine just based off that description already? And if you're not already sold, then they describe what it tastes like. A decadent wine blend that combines red fruit flavors with notes of caramel and a velvety smooth mouthfeel. I've really never even actually heard the word mouthfeel before, but somehow they make it sound good and it makes me want to drink a big glass of this. (laughs) Which I will, actually, during the episode. I don't know who writes these little blurbs, but I feel like I kind of want to hire them to do all my back cover detail on my books because they're really, really good. So enough about that. I'm going to pour myself a nice big glass of Apothic Crush. Best sound ever. And if you heard that crack in the background, that was my shoulder. Yep. I think pretty much all of me pops. enough about wine for now, although I could really talk about wine for just about ever, and let's move on to discussing Grace O'Malley. Just a little aside here, I'm going with the more Americanized version of these names really to spare you guys, because even trying to read a lot of these names with, there's like little accents and there's a lot of apostrophes and I have a hard time even reading these names in my head, which I'm sure I'm even in my head pronouncing them incorrectly, that to even try and get them out of my mouth, I tried doing it out loud and my tongue was tripping all over the place. So I'm going to spare you guys that and just give you guys the Americanized versions and hopefully nobody is offended by this, but I think it would be more offensive if I completely butchered every single thing I said on here. Grace O'Malley was born in 1530 on Clare Island as Irish nobility. Her father, Owen O'Malley, was lord of the O'Malley dynasty. They made a lot 
lot of money, not only on taxing people that were fishing off of their coasts, but they also had a trading and shipping business that went to France and Spain that earned them a lot of legitimate money. For the most part, Ireland was relatively left alone until the Tudors really decided to try to take over Ireland. This really started to happen a lot more during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and unfortunately during Grace O'Malley's time period. While her father was alive, for the most part, he was able to just kind of do as he pleased, acting as a pirate on the seas and going through and running his shipping and trading business and extorting fishermen from all over the world. Grace was most likely very formally educated due to being an Irish noble. She did speak Latin, as you'll learn later on. I'm not going to ruin that little spoiler. Also spoke French and Spanish to be able to help trade with her father. There is some speculation that she may have been fostered by another family. However, I feel like that's just mainly speculation, but that was the time period back then. A lot of times children of nobility would be sent to another home to be raised for a while. So that very well could have been the case, but if so, it was probably way earlier in her life. And here's the reason why I say that, because she sounds like quite the spunky kid. When she was young, she wanted to go out sailing with her father when he went to go on a Spanish expedition. He said no and cited the fact that her long hair would get caught in the sails. Well, despite him, she went and cut off all of her hair. And she did this to embarrass him because she knew that it would be humiliating for him to have a daughter with short cropped hair. And sure enough, it earned her a nickname. And this is probably the only Gaelic word that I really will even attempt to pronounce, but it was Grain Mall. And um, Mall actually means bald. So her name, Grain O'Malley, really even the O'Malley part, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it is in Gaelic. That's basically how Americanized version of Grain Mall, however they pronounce O'Malley, the Americanized version ends up being Grace O'Malley. So that's how that ends up coming about as being her name. But really her born name was, it looked like Nee N. I, and even the I has a little accent over it, and I'm not even sure how to pronounce that, so I could be saying that wrong too. But so going forward, we'll just refer to her as Grace O'Malley for my sake and for your sakes as well. <laughs> so it's a good thing that her father ended up letting her on the ships after all, because rumor has it that she saved his life. At one point, they were being attacked, and somebody was getting the upper hand on her father, and Grace O'Malley jumped from the rigging of the ship onto the back of her father's attacker and killed him. So if he did actually have reservations about letting her on the boat, I'm sure that this instance probably made him pretty glad that he let her come aboard. In 1546, when she was only 16 years old, she married her first husband, yes, there are more, Donald O'Flaherty, heir of the O'Flaherty title and future ruler of Larkanacht. I guess I am saying more Gaelic than anticipated, and I apologize. Together, they had three kids, the oldest being Owen, who ends up murdered, and possibly part of a plot from his younger brother, Maeve, who married somebody referred to as the Devil's Hook, which I couldn't help but wonder if that has to do with Hook from Peter Pan. So I may have to look into that one a little bit more, but I'm sure he was quite the rogue. <laughs> and they had several kids together, and then the youngest was Marah, which I may be pronouncing that right, but that's even Americanized, so so I have no excuses here. And he was pretty much an awful person. He loved war. He beat his sister. He wouldn't listen to his mother simply because she was a woman. And eventually he ended up betraying the family, which I'll get into a little bit more on that later on. In 1560, when she was only 30 years old, Donal, her husband, died while he was hunting. He was actually ambushed and killed off by a rival clan. After Donal died, girl got some ships. She inherited all of his warships as well as his castle. And so in 1564, 
she ended up returning to Clear Island with all of those ships. And her father, when he died, even though she had a half-brother, she inherited his shipping and trading business, all of his ships, and command of 200 men. From that point on, she pretty much enjoyed life on the sea for a while. Like I said, she had their legitimate trade with France and Spain. She also had taxing of fishermen, and she also went pirating. Basically, what they would do is sometimes buy land because they had she had castles all along the coastline for protection as well as for attacking ships. So when ships would sail past them, they would attack those ships from land and or when they were on the sea, if they saw a ship, obviously they would attack it and they would demand either cash or cargo. And if cash or cargo was not delivered upon request, then severe consequences were suffered. I'm sure we can probably all use our imagination and figure out what that was. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! While she was out and about, she saved Hugh DeLacy from the sea and hooks up with him. It's kind of like a reverse Little Mermaid in my mind. I'm wondering how romantic and passionate that must have been. I can't help, like, there's so many about this as I'm reading this, thinking how what a great story this would make as far as, like, a romance, especially with the daughter hooking up with the devil's hook, because I can see him being such a bad guy. Anyways, I digress. So, she hooks up with this guy, Hugh DeLacy, and he gets killed by the McMahons. She immediately seeks vengeance, because you don't kill a girl's lover. I'm just saying. So she attacked McMahon Castle, which is referred to as Duna Castle, and was later referred to as Dark Lady of Duna. In 1566, at the age of 36, she remarried to a man named Iron Richard Burke. His castle, Rockfleet Castle, was in a more defensible area than hers. She moved in her ships and her men and tossed her husband out. Lovely. <laughs> However, she did get pregnant by Burke. While she was on the boat, she had just delivered the baby and the boat was attacked. I've read different accounts of this and every single time the people on board the boat are different attackers. However, it does seem to be in the Mediterranean that this happened. She had just given birth to her baby. Her boat gets attacked. She leaps out of her birthing bed and storms out to defend her ship, double-fisting weapons. So not only does she regain control of her ship, she goes and takes control of the other ship, all after having just had her fourth kid. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, you know, I've had two kids and I'm certainly not going to be defending my ship anytime soon after having just had a baby. This child's name was Tybald Burke, who ended up becoming the Viscount of Mayo. And later on, he ended up being held hostage to ensure Grace's compliance. I'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, actually wasn't all that bad. He ended up finding true love in captivity. He learned to speak English and later on he was freed. But again, we'll get into that later. I thought it was kind of interesting interesting though, when I looked up his history, I found out that he had several children with his wives.
five. It just indicated that he had several daughters, none of whom were named, and four sons, all of whom were named, who I'm not saying on here because I feel like there should be some fairness among the sexes. I'm just saying. Even after her marriage, Grace still was pretty hurt over the whole thing with Hugh DeLacy. Yes, she had already killed the people who had killed him, but that wasn't enough for her. So she went back to the McMahon's castle, to Dunan Castle, defeated them all, and took the castle for herself. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, I'm just saying. Or, you know, a woman whose lover had been killed. In 1567, she divorced Burke just one year after marriage. Pretty sure that everyone saw this coming, considering the fact that she kicked him out of the castle. However, they still maintained a friendship. And theirs ends up being kind of a rocky relationship that you'll end up seeing as I kind of go through all of her history. The reason they kept their friendship initially was because they had to unite against England's forces that were starting to really apply pressure to Ireland in an attempt to take over control. She even helps Burke later on to get chosen as heir to Chieftain of Mayo, although something tells me this may have had to do with a little bit of self-interest regarding her own son, Tybald, who she clearly would probably want to inherit that title at some point. Later on down the road, she does get captured by the Earl of Desmond, and he's not really sure what to do with her. He gives her to the English, and she's thrown into a dungeon in Dublin Castle. And who comes to save her but her ex-husband Burke? So this is the thing, like, it's so crazy, you know, this back and forth between them. You have to kind of wonder about their actual relationship. I wish that there was more about their interaction together, because you have to wonder if they loved each other, hated each other, or something. I can't imagine it would even be anything in between. So she redoubles her efforts against the English, and really helps to encourage all of Ireland to rise up against the English and try and defy the rule that they're trying to exact on them. When England tried to attack her in 1579, Grace fought them off and sent them running. So here's something to take into consideration, though. At this point in time, Grace is 49 years old. I mean, for me, when I've always thought about Grace O'Malley and I've thought about her pirating days, you know, I guess I just, I'm thinking it's like, oh, in her late teens and her 20s. Oh no, girl is doing this like all in the later years of her life, which is super, super impressive. In 1583, her ex-husband dies and and, you know, she immediately takes up residence at his castle at Rock Fleet Castle and makes it her base. <laughs> After all, waste not, want not, right? After that, she begins to launch a full attack against the new English governor, Bingham. Bingham's brother later on retaliates by killing her eldest son, Owen. Then Bingham captures her under the guise of wanting to be peaceful and accuses her of treason and refers to her as, quote-unquote, the nurse to all rebellions in Ireland. She barely escapes with her life. There's also a saying about Grace O'Malley, and it all it said was that it came from the English, but honestly, after the relationship that she had with Bingham, I'm pretty sure that it was probably Bingham who said it. And it is, a woman who hath imprudently passed the part of womanhood. So basically, really kind of uh, putting her womanhood to shame, which I'm pretty sure Grace O'Malley wouldn't have given two craps about. Just saying. After Grace O'Malley escaped with her life from Bingham's capture, he then swayed Moreau, her youngest son, to side with him, which which causes a huge rift between Moreau and Grace. And Grace is even said to have refused to ever acknowledge him again. However, she did often curse his name. So I guess she did kind of acknowledge him, but not in the best way. After Bingham sways Moreau, he then destroys a whole fleet of Grace's ships and she takes his in retaliation. You go, girl. In 1593, at the age of 63, Bingham kidnaps her sons, Tybald and Moreau, and also her half-brother. So she's forced to petition the English queen for assistance. And not only does she petition the English queen, she goes all the way to England to demand to get them released. Initially, when she was in England, Elizabeth and Grace sent letters back and forth to one another, but then eventually it was determined 
that they should meet in person. So something that's kind of interesting to think about here, uh, Queen Elizabeth was 60 at the time and Grace O'Malley was 63. So these women both are in a very similar point in their life and they both have fought hard tooth and nail to get to be in the positions that they're in. So you have to imagine that there's a level of some respect between the two of them, even despite their incredible differences. Grace O'Malley appeared at Greenwich Palace wearing a fine gown and, of course, surrounded by guards to meet with Queen Elizabeth. There's always so many rumors when it comes to Grace O'Malley, but so I don't know how much of this is all true, but I'm going to go in and just share it anyways. Apparently, Grace O'Malley slipped a knife in and, of course, the guards discovered it when they did like a little pat down and she swore it was for her own protection. The funny thing about this is that Queen Elizabeth was just kind of like, eh, okay, that's fine. I get it. She wasn't offended or appalled or anything along those lines. But then I guess when you actually invite a pirate into your home and you know that she's a female pirate, so girls got some gumption, you can probably expect that she's sliding in a weapon or two. I guess she probably was just glad it wasn't a gun. There's also a rumor that Grace O'Malley refused to bow down to Queen Elizabeth, citing the fact that she was Queen of England and that Grace O'Malley was an Irish citizen and Elizabeth did not own Ireland. There's nothing about that I read about Elizabeth's reaction to this. So I'm kind of thinking that this may have just been a rumor, but then considering how much of a rebel Grace was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. It would be really interesting to get more details on that one. But there's also another sort of funny rumor that just kind of tells you a little bit about Grace's personality too. Apparently she sneezed at some point and a lady handed her a lace-edged handkerchief. Grace goes and blows her nose in the handkerchief and tosses it into the hearth, into the flames. Well, all the English court is sort of appalled by this. Why would she throw away a perfectly lovely hanky and Grace looks at them and she's like it's soiled and it's dirty what else would you do with it so you know I thought that was kind of funny one of the interesting things also about her meeting with Elizabeth was that Grace didn't speak enough English and Elizabeth didn't speak enough Irish for them to communicate well enough but they did discover that they both spoke Latin so their entire meeting was done in Latin however I have to say at this point that if you are going to take over a country in my opinion you should probably at least learn the language I mean terms were met at the meeting between Elizabeth and Grace. Bingham had taken, obviously, Grace's sons and half-brother, but he also took some cattle as well as some land. And obviously, Queen Elizabeth wanted Grace to stop leading rebellions against England because she wants to take over Ireland. And so both of them had very valuable things that they wanted from this meeting, and per the terms, they both didn't get but also did get what they wanted. Elizabeth promised to bring Bingham back to England because of all the havoc that he was in Ireland. She also promised to return Grace's sons, half-brother, as well as the cattle and the land. And in return, Grace promised to back down from her rebellion against England. But things don't always go according to plan. Fortunately, Grace did get her sons back. Not too sure how thrilled she was to get Moreau back, but hey, she had him anyways. And Bingham was finally removed from Ireland, much to the happiness of all, I'm certain. However, she never got her cattle back, and she never got her land back. And later on, Bingham ended up being sent back to Ireland. At that point, Grace was kind of like, this deal's done. And so she started leading the rebellion again, which led on to the Nine Years' War. Despite having lived a wild life filled with war and battle and fighting and being captured and meeting with the queen and so many other things, she ended up dying in 1603 of natural causes at the age of 73. And she did, and for those of you wondering, die in Rockfleet Castle, which is the one that she stole from her ex-husband. Also, another interesting 
thing, too, is that when she died in 1603, Queen Elizabeth died that exact same year. You can find Grace O'Malley featured on websites like Badass of the Week and Rejected Princesses. Grace O'Malley was definitely a badass woman who fought for what she believed in, had no problem coming to a fight, no problem finishing a fight or starting one for that matter, and definitely deserves to be one of our highlighted badass women in history. On that note, since I'm talking about pirates, going on to what I read this week, I went full on pirate with Eliza Knight's Breath from the Sea, which is the third book of her Thistles and Roses series. An infamous pirate, a revered captain, a dangerous heist, a sizzling proposition. Tudor England, 1601. Meet Lady Antonia Burke, captain of the pirate ship Lady Hook, and her nemesis, who also just happens to make her heart skip a beat, Lord Titus Graves, captain in her Royal Majesty's Navy. In her quest for the Lucius Ring, Antonia presents Titus with a proposition he simply cannot refuse. This book has it all, passion, adventure, and is completely unputdownable, like all of Eliza's books. It is on Kindle Unlimited, so if you're enrolled in that, snap it up. If not, it is available on Amazon and you will enjoy it, I promise. This week I'm going to talk about my book, which is Annis's Bargain. This comes out on Tuesday, June 25th, and I'm super, super excited about it. So Annis is the second daughter of the Earl of Warwick, and she's well known for her beauty, but hates just being a pretty face. Eliza is being so kind as to offer me a cover quote for Annis's Bargain, and so she talked about this in our happy hour last week because she's in the middle of reading it. So that was so wonderful of her to share that. So I don't want to share the back cover blurb with you again because you have already heard that. So I'm just going to kind of explain what it's about in case anybody hasn't heard it yet. And I will also read an excerpt. Annis is the second daughter of the Earl of Warwick and she's the one that's well known the most for her beauty. And she hates being just a pretty face. Even still, she feels like she can never measure up to her sister's talents. So it's not just other people who think she's just a pretty face. She's been kind of convinced that she is too. When her castle is under siege, and her people are starving, she does the only thing that she thinks is in her power to help. She offers herself as bride to their most mortal enemy, the Grams. If you read Marin's Promise, you know exactly how dastardly the Grams actually were. So Laird Graham's son, James, is her husband-to-be, and he turns out to be quite a surprise. Here is the excerpt. James's gaze narrowed and didn't once trail down the length of her body. He was perhaps one of the only men in England and Scotland to not pay her beauty any mind. Even the men who claimed to be chivalrous had slid appreciative stares her way when they thought she would not notice. Not this man. His eyes did not move past her face as though he were assessing her worth as a person rather than her beauty as a wife, as though he could see into her soul. Why could he not be like the other men and take in her appearance rather than leave her nearly squirming like a worm baited on a hook? Do you not find me beautiful? She intended the question to pull his eyes from her face to her body, something she was used to, something she could bear. Only the words came out sounding arrogant and ugly. She licked her lips, giving in to the nervousness twitching through her. Isn't that what all men want? A woman with a title who's beautiful and comes with a hefty dowry? There are things more important in life, he answered with a slow, steady patience. Another unexpected response. The man was insufferable. There are few men who would agree with you, she countered. There are many men who are fools. I don't know why I gave him a Scottish accent and didn't give her an English accent. Um, I'm going to blame the wine on that one and I will drink to that real quick. So that is Annis's Bargain and that does come out on Tuesday, June 25th and I'm super excited about it. So now is a reader question. This question comes from Anne. Thank you so much 
much, Anne, for sending this in. I really appreciate it. And you are asking, what is your favorite way to research a book? We do a lot of things to research books. I'm not just digging around through a bunch of books, which, oh my goodness, my library is massive with so many history books, audible books, and physical books, and ebooks, and any kind of book I can get my hand on. My favorite kind of research, however, is hands-on. And I know it's romance, so I know what you're thinking take your mind out of the gutter. I did actually take Krav Maga at one point so that I could learn how to fight, so I could do more realistic fight scenes, and that was so incredible. I truly enjoyed doing it. In fact, it was so empowering that I told my daughters that when they get to the point that they start dating, they are going to have to take Krav Maga before I let them start dating. Another thing that I did was I was doing a story about a healer. This one was Enchantment of a Highlander, and while I was writing this book, I started learning how to make all-natural body products. And so I tried to do it a lot of times in the ways that they would have done it back then. So I infuse my own oils with things like calendula, which are uh, like marigold petals. And I would make tinctures. And I did a lot of these little things from those balms that I would make and using oils. I did get the essential oils. I didn't actually press them myself because I'm not that hardcore. But I did put together a lot of different balms and everything. And it was a lot of fun really dabbling into that and thinking how this would have worked out for them. I'd grow the herbs in my garden and surprisingly didn't kill them because usually I kill everything and then I would hang them to dry them and everything so it was really really cool experience and then obviously another great way to do research that is super super fun is to travel and if you like hearing about how authors travel through different places you can hear all about our trips to Scotland for myself Lori and Eliza and our episodes on traveling in Scotland which are episodes two through five so kick it back to episodes two through five and listen to all the insanity that ensued while we were in Scotland because in my opinion, they were pretty hilarious. Of course, we also were drinking. And now is a question for readers. So speaking of travel, if you could travel anywhere to do historical research, where would you go? And why would you want to do it? What exactly would you be wanting to learn about? And maybe that will give me some ideas for future travel for myself because I'm always looking for cool places to go. You can send us your answer at historybooksandwine at gmail.com as well as any other questions that you may have. Or if you have any questions that you would like for us to address on the show. Please check out our website at historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com to hear our podcasts and read through our show notes. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google, and on Alexa. Simply say, Alexa, play History Books and Wine podcast and you'll hear us start talking. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Feel free to leave a review if you have enjoyed our show. New episodes are posted every Thursday with the upcoming shows, including June 27th, Lori Ann Bailey will be discussing Joan of Arc. Then on July 4th is our next happy hour, Wee! where we're celebrating with discussing some of the badass women in American history. Thank you so much much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.